Welcome to episode 148. Today, the legendary Chris Tovani joins us to talk about motivating students to read. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. When thinking about reading instruction, we can break it into how readers make sense of text and what are the types of text. Yet, I, for one, often forget to plan for the motivation behind reading that text. I just jump in, hoping students will fall in love with the text that I have loved myself. In this podcast, the highly revered Chris Tobani shares her approach to motivating different types of students to read. She uses a mask metaphor for different types of students we all have and love. Chris shows us that these masks are just temporary and they conceal the real student behind the mask. Now, on to today's podcast. I am so honored to have Chris Tovani on the podcast today. She's going to talk about why do I have to read this? Her book. Let me read you the subtitle. Literacy Strategies to Engage Our Most Reluctant Students. Chris, I've known you for so many years as a literacy expert. You're like on the level of like Kelly Gallagher, Penny Kittle, um, so many of those literacy experts. Like I, you've been in my class for years now. And so I just, it's an honor and it's like, I'm like pinching myself, I'm like fanboying. So like, wow, Chris, somebody is here. So welcome to the podcast, Chris. Well, thank you, Tom, for having me. Wow, that's putting me with Penny and uh, Kelly. That's quite an honor. I appreciate that. Thank you. So let's start off with giving us your context. Like, what is your work context right now? So right now I am um, working in schools. Um, still, you know, just starting in January, actually, once COVID kind of calmed down a little bit, um, doing what uh, I call literacy labs. So I'm going in and planning with teachers and then trying to walk the talk where I just model, um, you know, a literacy strategy with the unit they're currently teaching and what it can look like, um, what workshop model can look like with secondary students and um, not just trying to be, um, you know, a model for teachers to copy, but really a venue for teachers to study what engagement looks like. So um, we're studying what what's causing kids to engage and then what's also causing kids to disengage. So actually, when I bomb, that's, we, I think we learn more from that than when the lesson goes smoothly. <laughs> I love that. It's a case study and engagement, right? And it's every time I bomb, which I quite often do, I learn how to be a better teacher the next day. Yeah, I think that that idea of making mistakes, right? Those is a way for us to know that we're getting we're getting smarter, we're getting better. I'll have to change that on my bio when I present. I'll just say like, Tan has uh, has sixteen years of mistakes under his belt. Oh, I love that! I love that! I love that! Yeah, yeah. 
a sign of a good teacher, right? Right. Uh, can you talk to us about the seed of this book? Every book has a seed. And what was the seed for this book, Chris? Well, ironically, um, I turned this book in November of 2019, so before COVID. And one of the things that I've tried to do throughout my career is to try to figure out like, okay, how do we engage all different types of kids, whether they're English learners or they're, they're elementary kids or they're um, you know, bored, like what's the whole piece to it? And so I thought, all right, I need to kind of think about, all right, what, what are my systems and structures that when I go into classrooms where I don't know the kids at all, I've just met them, um, how do I kind of anticipate uh, what kids might need. And so I organized the books around these masks of disengagement. Um, and the reason I chose masks was because masks protect us as we've learned with COVID, right? They, they, they hide us from disease. They protect us from things we don't want to be exposed to. And I like that idea of kids wearing masks because they're temporary. And um, I think it empowered teachers to think about, all right, I can um, use my instructional strategies and my teacher superpowers to remove those masks of disengagement um, and not give up my power by just saying these kids won't or these kids can't, um, but really get back into the game and figure out, all right, what does this kid need to re-engage with the reading and writing and thinking that I want them to do in my classroom? All the language specialists out there are clapping for you right now because when you said we don't focus on what kids can't do. We focus on what kids can do. That's like the core principle of working with multilingual students. So, uh, Kristen, you as a teacher in the field with us. Well, thank you. Yeah, you know, I learned that as a baby teacher um, from a man named Don Graves, who was, you know, this great writing teacher. And I remember watching him as a student teacher. And after he was conferring with students, he, he was talking to teachers and he said, all right, the most important thing when you're working with little kids and they're writing is to focus on what they can do as opposed to what they can't. So um, I think a lot of writing teachers are in that same boat and I'm probably reading teachers are as well. Like, all right, let's start with that strength first before going with the deficit. So thanks for, for highlighting that. It's always about the strengths. Before we go into the chapters of the book, can we uh, can you start us off with a story that has really informed your practice as you've been in schools for so many years and supporting so many teachers and students? Tell us a story. Oh gosh, there's just so many. And I, I tried to organize the book that way. Um, the very first book I wrote, I read it, but I don't get it, is so anecdotal. And so much of it came from my struggle as a reader uh, who could decode beautifully, but had no idea what she was reading. And so I thought, all right, as I'm getting towards the end of my career, maybe it's time to share some more of those stories. And maybe it's time to um, just humble yourself and let people learn from your mistakes. And so I think one that I tell in the very beginning of the book is um, an experience that I had with my instructional coach, who to this day continues to be my instructional coach. She's also my very good friend, Sam Bennett. Uh, she had uh, brought in, do you know Sam? Yeah, I know Sam. She, she was on... She was mentioned on the podcast, and one thing she said that was amazing, she said, the student that's speaking is the student that's learning, and the student that's learning is the student that's thinking. Yeah, so that in her book, that were, it's the line that got me too, right? Who's ever doing the reading, the writing, the talking is the one doing the thinking. 
So she, yeah, so she has just been, you know, I, she's kept me in teaching this long, or I think I would have retired way sooner. Um, and, but anyway, she had brought in some teachers from North Dakota to come watch me teach. And I had been traveling on the road. My second book was out and I was thinking I was pretty hot stuff and um, teach We were on a block schedule. So teachers were seeing only two classes for 90 minutes. And the first class were seniors. It went really well. I had, I had planned. They were, you know, we had this really engaging unit going on. And then the second class was this, uh, it was called strategic literacy. It was a reading intervention class that was run like workshop model. And um, I was trying to run it as a straight workshop model where I was modeling something and we were working on inferring. And then I had them read a couple of short little pieces and then their job was to go back to their novels. And it was a disaster. It was an absolute disaster. And so after the teachers watched, we debriefed and Sam spun it and kept me safe like she always does. But then after the visitors left, she said to me, what happened? between your first and second period, it's like I saw a civil rights violation in your second period. And it was like a knife in the heart, but it also made me so angry. I was like, how dare you come into my classroom and tell me what to do with my kids. And you don't know how hard these kids are. And you don't know that they don't want to. And I found myself, I caught myself blaming the students, right? And so I tell that story at the very beginning because Sam sent me an email that I never responded to. And I have that in the book, um, but that really changed my life as a teacher. It was like, I, all right, you're right, you're right. Like, what was I doing in first hour that was so engaging? How was I planning for students compared to what I was doing with the kids in second hour? And, and the kids in the second hour, you know, deserve the reading and the writing planning more than you know, anybody, right? And so I think that story was teaching is so complex. Like you're never there. It doesn't matter if you've written books, doesn't matter if you've taught for 30 years, we can always get better for kids. So that was a really lovely teaser for people to get your first book. So tell us right then, like what happened between the first and the second one after you reflected? Uh, well, so the first book I read it, but I don't get it was what kids used to say to me. Um, when I moved from elementary to high school, they, I would assign reading to be done at home. They would come back to class and they would say, Tavani, I read it. I swear I did, but I don't get it. And I was like, well, great. That's what I'd planned class on last night's reading. So then I'd spend that next class helping them understand what they were supposed to get the night before. So it was all really about comprehension instruction and like, how do you help kids be more metacognitive? And then what do you do to help them get unstuck? The second book um, was called, do I really have to teach reading? And that was from, um, a chemistry teacher friend of mine who said, really, come on, Tavani, you're in the building. Do I have to teach reading? Can't you teach them how to do it? And so that was when I kind of started to explore, all right, what are the different things that, um, content area teachers need to do to help their kids be better readers of their disciplinary text. And so Steph Harvey had suggested to me, when you go out to do workshops and you go out to you know, do speaking engagements, listen carefully to teachers' questions. Don't discount them. Keep track of them because it's things teachers are trying to figure out. And so that's what I did is I kept track of questions I kept getting from teachers. And then I went into um, different content area classrooms in my, in my building and, and tried things out to try to figure out, okay, will this work in a math class? Will it work in a science class? Because I think that piece of helping kids be more literate goes across grade levels and across content areas, right? Like re-instruction has got to continue K-12, but it just looks different as kids get older. It's very similar to uh, working with multilingual students where teachers will say, you go take them and you go fix their English. And it's like, they can learn English 
in any context. Uh, that's why I'm not pulling them out anymore. They can learn the best place to learn science language is in your class. The best place to learn art language is in art class. Yeah, I love that, right? I love it. Like, like, like we have this magic wand, right? That's going to fix them. Yeah. And, you know, I think that just kind of goes back to redefining, like, what do we consider literate? What do, you know, how do kids learn language, whether it's talking about a new musician or it's slang or, you know, reading the cheats for a video game? Like, how do they learn something in their environment? It's not by pulling them out and doing isolated skills. That's for sure. And then anytime I hear teachers like, oh, go fix them, it's like, there is nothing they need fixing. Right. Let's go back to that, that story that you talked about, the first period and second period. What did you do differently? Like, what caused the second period to be like, oh, disaster? Well, you know, I, I, I got to learn from Lucy Calkins young, you know, very as a young teacher, and Donald Graves, and all those amazing people who really believe in that authenticity of teaching kids how to read and write. And, um, you know, I, I, it was a really sad awakening, I think, when I realized that there are some kids who will not read just because it's a great book. They need more reasons than, oh my gosh, you're going to love this book, right? And so I think that was the piece I really started digging into is, all right, okay, what are, what are the different reasons we give kids to actually engage in reading and writing and, and, and discussion, right? So I think that's where that journey kind of started was I can't just give them big blocks of time, modeling and great books. That's not going to hook every single kid. Those three things are extremely important, but you know, there's got to be other things that I'm thinking about and planning for if I'm going to hook more kids. What are some of those things that hook students besides just well, so that's that's the second organizing feature in um, why do I have to read this are these things I call the six T's. And I stole the first four T's from Expeditionary Learning um, and the amazing work that they all do. But that idea of thinking about, all right, okay, what's a topic? What's something compelling that will cradle the skills and standards? Um, what are the targets connected to standards that I want kids to know and be able to do? And then what tasks will they create that are authentic, that have an audience, that will give kids a way to show, to show that they're actually um, hitting those targets? Um, and then what kind of text, compelling text that's beautiful, that's different text structures, that's different reading levels connected to the topics. And then the two new ones that I added was that idea of like, all right, how am I using time? Am I making every single kid do every single assignment? Or am I thinking about the kid who maybe needs more time to actually do the reading? And if so, can I take something off of his plate so he doesn't have to fake it? Um, what about the kid who's getting done with everything very quickly? Can I provide a more sophisticated model that that student could work toward? Or, um, you know, raise the level of difficulty a little bit for that child that's more, um, you know, compelling and engaging. And then the last one, which I think is kind of ironic, was this idea of tending. Like, how are we tending to, to kids? And I think with COVID, that's going to become, I mean, we saw it this year, but next year it's just going to, continue is that idea of uh, how do we take care of of people and 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 maybe it's this idea of here's a pencil right like okay, I'm, I'm gonna, you know some people will say well you're teaching them to be irresponsible but when you think about it if you 
hate to write and you hate to read, the smartest thing to do is don't bring a pencil to class and don't bring your book. <laughs> so how do we remove those barriers? And, and, and maybe, you know, this is going to sound kind of corny, but I always thought about my classroom as um, treating people who came into my classroom like I would if they came into my home, right? Like, how are you? How, you know, I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for coming. Um, what do you need today? You know, so the, so the kid who's, it comes in angry, wearing that mask of anger, the kid who's got his head on his desk, which is saying, hey, what do, you, what do you need right now? And so I think when I plan thinking about those six T's, is my topic compelling? Do the targets and the tasks match? Do I have great text? Um, how's the time going to be structured? And then, and then what are some of the things I'm going to have to tend to? Um, that's really kind of helped me figure out how to, um, you know, help kids remove those masks of disengagement. Right. It's when I listen to the six T's, it reminds me of like uh, a Rubik's cube and these all these sides and you really have to like uh, manipulate them so they all fit together and, and they do fit together. We just have to find a way to make it fit together. Would you tell us like what that would look like? Let's say like, okay, the, you, you have these six T's. What would that look like in a class? Well, I think um, there's two kinds of planning that I've started doing, and that really sort of happened when I had that um, embarrassing civil rights violation, you know, from my coach Sam. <laughs> but thinking about thinking about um, long-term planning versus day-to-day -day planning, I was not a fan of long-term planning. I just didn't. I didn't want to do it. And when principals would ask me to do it, I was just awful because I thought, I don't want to plan all this stuff that's not going to be appropriate for my students that I haven't met yet. And then I realized, okay, if I don't long-term plan, I don't have this like vision of where I've headed and that there are certain things I can do before I even meet the kids. For example, doesn't matter where I go, doesn't matter where I go in Canada or Australia or the United States where I've worked the most, I'm going to have a student in the class who doesn't read at grade level. I just know that's going to happen. So if I anticipate that, I can bring in more than one text that that students can read to access the content, and then I can maybe model a thinking strategy with. I know no matter where I go, no matter what unit or topic the teacher wants me to use as I model, that there's going to be at least one or two kids that rolls their eyes and say, says, Oh my God, why do I have to do this? This is so stupid. So if I can connect the greenhouse effect to a compelling topic, like these horrible forest fires that we've been having in Colorado, um, or I can find something that that standard or skill sits in to a, con to a, to a topic that's, that's current, I'll be able to pull kids in. So thinking about those six T's in a long-term planning venue, allows me then on a day-to-day -day basis to make these tweaks. So I can think about a kid who is um, maybe off task for the day. And, and when I'm planning for the next day, I can think, okay, what did that student need? Um, was it maybe the wrong text? Uh, maybe he didn't know the task I wanted him to do, or maybe he doesn't see uh, how the case study fits with the topic. Maybe I need a new case study. So then on the day-to-day -day basis, it, it allows me to kind of have boots on the ground and make those quick changes um, if I've done some of that long-term planning. I love what you talked about in your perspective of 
long-term planning. Like you, your your instruction change when you move from daily short-term planning because when short-term planning, it's like activities-based. But long-term planning is assessment-based, thinking-based, right? It's skill-based. And so when I plan now, when I have a long-term plan, you're exactly right. It's like there's an arch of where I'm trying to get kids to go to. And if I know the destination, I can help my kids along the way. Without knowing the destination, I'm not able to help kids. Yeah, and I think I think two other pieces, you're exactly right. And I think um, if I'm not sure where I'm going, I get off track. Things, you know, I'm driving in the car to work and I hear this really cool thing on NPR. I'm like, oh, I'm going to have kids read about that today. And I veer off and I'm going in all different directions. The other thing that long-term planning helps me avoid is um, burnout. So, you know, when I was just doing a straight workshop, I was constantly thinking about, okay, okay, okay. What are they going to read today? What are they going to write today? And I'm like running to the copy machine and I'm trying to get there before the person who breaks it and then leaves it. So you know, every morning I'm trying to get there earlier and then, you know, I'm stressed out and it's just like workshop model. If you don't do some long-term planning, just fries teachers. And so I think thinking about, all right, where are you heading? What are the resources you could compile now without meeting the kids gives you more time when you're, you know, just when school starts and you're just, you know, the race has begun. Yeah. I used to remember when I used to just like plan on the daily or like the day before it was, I was just so stressed. Like what are the kids going to do tomorrow? And then I would, but then when I switched to long-term planning, there's like a sense of ease and peace to it. Like, okay, I know what I have to get kids to do by this Friday. So how do I get them to do it on Monday? Right. It's just kinder on, it's like self-care as well for teachers. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I think in the, in, um, why do I have to read this? The metaphor I use is um, there's this really tall building in downtown Denver. And we call it the cash register building. It's really a bank building, but it looks like an old time cash register. And I had a meeting up there as I was writing the book. And it was so cool because at the top of that building, you could see to the West, the Rocky Mountains. You could see to the East, the Plains. You could see to the South where I live. To the right, you could see Boulder and you could see Red Rocks. And you had this really great panoramic view. You could see the direction of where you wanted to go. And then when that meeting went over, was over and I went down to the street level of downtown Denver, it was a whole different view. I couldn't see what direction I was necessarily going because of the tall skyscrapers, but I could hear the sounds of the traffic and the people and the hustle and the bustle. And I thought, okay, that's kind of like in our classroom with long-term planning and day-to-day planning. If we know where we're headed, then we can do that day-to-day planning where all the action, where we love to be is and be more efficient and not get thrown off when a kid says, I don't want to read this. It's too hard. We could say, oh, well, I have three more other choices over here that might you might like better. Um, it just it just kind of helps us engage kids for more minutes of the day, right? And the more minutes they're reading, writing, and talking, the better they're getting. Yeah, I love that metaphor of the of being in the top top floor of that tower and then going descending down to the street level, having a totally different view. It's like there's a forest and then there are leaves, and we don't want to be lost within the leaves. So let's talk about your book now. This is so great. We've talked about everything connected to your book, but not directly to your book-ish, except for the six T's. This is wonderful. So in your chapters, every chapter you have is like a mask of this, a mask of that, 
So let's talk about the massive apathy. Like, guide us through connecting students who, mm, why do I, I don't want to read this. You know, I think for a lot of my career, so I've taught 32 years, and I think a lot of my career, at least one class were with kids who were disengaged with school. Usually it was three of my five sections. And, you know, even in the classes that were kids were planning on going to, on to university, I saw the same thing of this idea of like just jumping through hoops, right? Of just, okay, this is school. It's stupid. And I just have to do this. And that idea of like, it's just, you have to do it. And I thought, okay, why is that? The last grade before I went to high school, I taught first graders. And if you know, first graders are exuberant every day. You can go, you could say to them, all right, you guys, today I'm gonna take a spelling test. And they'll like cheer, right? Like everything is wonderful and happy and great. And you just see how that like enthusiasm just drops. And I think as human beings, we we like to learn, we need to learn. And that idea of all right, there's so much work in this world that needs to be done. Can't we, especially as language arts teachers, think about how to just let kids start doing this real work by giving them options and tools and ways to get their voices out in the world? And, um, you know, so it's authentic. So it's authentic tasks and audiences for them to do the work for. And I think the kids who are apathetic just don't see the power of being able to read and write and speak in different languages and, and communicate. And so I, I in that chapter, you know, the, the mask of apathy and anger, it's like, all right, the world needs you. And here's the really important work that we're going to be doing in here. That, that's such a powerful way to help that kid remove that work because their time is valuable. Their time is valuable. That's why we, let's go back to that last question about planning. So how, how do you plan long-term, by the way, for uh, language arts so, it, you know, it just kind of depends. I'm doing a lot of planning with teachers, especially over the summer. And so I, I show them those six T's. I'm like, all right, you could start wherever you want. So if you are a science teacher, and one of the things that you have to teach is the carbon cycle. Maybe you want to start with topic and think about, all right, why does the carbon cycle matter? What, what bigger topic is that connected to? Uh, if you're an English teacher and you have to teach um, the great Gatsby, Let's look at the themes and see if there's a theme that we can connect to today. And so a couple that I've helped teachers plan and that I've taught things like, you know, the, the dark side of the American dream, you know, how far will Americans go to get what they want? Um, I think if I got to teach it now, I would look at Black Lives Matter and how do we, you know, how does white privilege oppress other cultures and races? Uh, because I think as, as, as English teachers, we believe that literature is this reflection of the human experience. And so, of course, there are themes in novels that reflect what's happening today. So if you're bound by a topic or you're bound by a novel, you can go either direction. When I have sole freedom, so if I get to teach a summer school course or um, a long-term residency and I get to plan a unit, I try to think of something that's currently happening that we can study. So in the book, I write a lot about the Syrian refugee crisis. It was something I didn't really know much about and realized, oh my goodness, you know, it, there's just such a huge implication about, about what's happening there that Americans don't know about. So like today, of course, I would maybe dig into what's happening over in, in Ukraine. 
Um, we could go something around this idea of gun violence. Um, uh, working on a unit right now to do with some kids around um, the title of the unit is how, how do I know some how do I know if this is racist? And I think that's this idea, you know, this idea of like, all right, so maybe we're doing things we don't even know what's racist. And we've got some amazing books that we're going to use as book clubs. Um, um, Frederick Joseph's book, My Black Friend, um, Ibram Kendi's sections of How to Be an Anti-Racist, uh, Sonitary Paul's book, Stamped, uh, The Other West Moore. Uh, so I've got one more, it's just flying out of my head right now, but this idea of like, all right, let's dig in, let's look at a perspective that's different from this white privileged viewpoint, and let's try to get smarter about what we're doing. Uh, so if I can go current, if I can go local, you know, the more local, the better, right? So I think so many school boards don't want critical race theory taught. Well, you know, hello, school boards need to hear from kids why they do need to hear this. And so I think there's local audiences that they could share their reading and thinking well. So I think that's kind of a long way. There's many different entry points. There's many different ways you could plan. You don't want a, a, a particular novel or topic to handcuff you. And you can go back to those six T's and think about, all right, what's your entry point? Yeah, I'm thinking as I, I'm a social studies teacher, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, how do I make the Renaissance relevant to kids in 2022, right? And so I think back like, okay, what's current, what's local? And I think I just want to emphasize what you just said there, like start with something small that's connected to their lives that they really care about. I guess this really goes back to knowing students and then listening to them and trying to find opportunities as they present themselves throughout the year. Like, oh, hey, this connects to what you're doing. I'm always trying to connect my units to students' video games. Like I'm a sixth grade teacher and they always talk about Roblox or Minecraft or Valorant. And I'm like, okay, I'll just, when I write examples, I'll write like an example of um, like today I taught dialogue with my students and I like, I had someone say something about Valorant. Like, oh, you ranked to gold in Valorant. And kids were like, they were like excited about that. It was just so funny, but yet they didn't realize that I was teaching them like, oh, when you start a quote, quotation mark goes here and at the end and so it's relevant for them yeah it's all about the relevance yeah like, you know it's like human beings we pay attention if it, if it impacts us right and so it's so smart that's so smart to go video games because that's their language right now and so we gotta we gotta honor that right. so let's move to another uh mass which is the mass of the class clown we always have class clowns so those are the most fun students how can we help students um, put down that mask? Yeah, so right, we all, have, we all, you're right. We all have class clowns and I love the class clown for like the first seven minutes and then I'm, and then I'm tired, right? Like, it's like, okay, come on. So I learned a lot about a real class clown I had named Caleb who, um, you know, was just this amazing photographer. And when he talked about photography, he was not clowning around. He was so serious and he was so thoughtful. And it was just this, this amazing shift. And that was another thing that I learned about these masks is that, you know, you might be the class clown in English, but when it comes to photography class, you're not, full, you're, you're not wearing that mask. And so like kind of digging down 
okay, why are kids wearing that mask? And, and so one of the things that I think Caleb had, one of the reasons he wore his mask was because he was a really struggling reader and writer. And so he put that mask on because if he could, uh, you know, not only distract me, but pull a few other kids off with, you know, his floor show of fake tripping up a step or something, you know, silly, then that was less minutes he had to actually do something that was so difficult for him. And so I think authenticity and audience um, uh, really is important for the class clown, right? So we started looking at, okay, what are the things that photographers have to read and write? Um, you know, what, what, when you go to a photography show, what's the kind of writing that accompanies the pictures? What do photo essays look like? Um, let's study that. Let's look at the kind of reading you're going to have to do if you're trying to figure out how to do a new type of um, photography or shooting or, you know, um, you know, looking at different cameras. And so that was one way to pull him in. And then I think the other piece that pulled him in was this idea of like, right, you're thinking that what you're going to figure out about the Syrian refugee crisis, you're going to share the last day of class um, with visitors who work with refugees. And so I had a little breakfast, people who worked with refugees in the community came in and they had to share their position on, you know, should the United States take in more refugees or should it, they keep refugees out? And I think that idea of like, really, you're really going to, I really, am going to have to do this. That got his attention um, as well. And so he saw how the writing and the reading was going to prepare him for that communication. So I think, uh, you know, authentic, authentic activity, you know, not only really even not say activities, but I think authentic work products and audience to share that product with, whether it's real people or you're sharing it with a fifth grade class or you're creating a document board to put at the local coffee shop. I think just getting that work out to people beyond just the teacher's eyes is really important for the class clown, for all students really. Right. Because then instead of students saying or asking, why do we do this? They already have a reason why we're doing this. There's an uh, audience. I, so I, I guess this is connected to service learning. And service learning provides that opportunity to say, we're doing this reading and writing so that we can produce this thing together for this community, this group in the community that, that we're working with, we're collaborating with. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think that's the real noble level and i i think i'm kind of down here in the mud of like all right if you are prepared you know fine i'll give you the a i don't care but you're going to feel like an idiot when these people are here or you're posting your you know your product doesn't look very good so i'm going to show you how to make it look really good and i'm going to get you ready for it but you're going to have to actually do the work and so i think that piece of you're in control sometimes sometimes works as well works because we can't change i mean we can't make any human being do something they don't want to do right so there's got to be that choice built in somehow right and uh, definitely for teenagers you can't make them do anything they don't want to do mm -hmm. uh, let's talk about then the mask of minimal effort uh, what can we do what are the causes and what can we do to help students go beyond that you know so not to make a sweepy generalization but there's, I, I've encountered two kinds of kids that wear the mask of minimal effort, right? And they seem to be at the both ends of the spectrum of the academic spectrum. This, the, the, the AP kid or the international baccalaureate kid who, you know, 
doesn't really value a growth mindset, doesn't really want to take a risk, has always done, school's always been easy. So they just, you know, produce the first thing possible to, you know, because they don't really see any purpose of school other than just, I got to get a good grade so I can get into college, right? So there's that mask of minimal effort. And then I think there's the other side. Um, and that side of uh, the last couple, last high school I worked at, we had a very high population of kids who were undocumented. And so a lot of those kids knew they were not going on to college. Um, and they knew that if they got their high school diploma, they would be able to make more money uh, working for their TO, you know, in, as a roofing, you know, working in, in a roofing company, right? So it wasn't really like, I don't really care about grammar. I don't really care about punctuation. Is this good enough to pass so I can graduate because that's the end of the road for my schooling? Um, so once again, like trying to track back a little bit of like, all right, why, why, why is this mask of minimal effort on in this classroom? What do you need? Um, I think that's that first piece. And I think about that mask of minimal effort. And I realize as teachers, we wear these masks too. And like, there's times I've put on the mask of minimal effort and I've put it on because I think it's stupid what I'm supposed to be doing. Or I, I think, all right, this is going to last this year. And then we'll be on to something new. So if I just do the bare minimum, fill out the form, you know, show up to the meeting, I'll get through this without a lot of extra energy. And what I think about in terms of that way, it helps me to go back and think about, all right, what's, what's a worthy task? What's, what's worthy of these students' time? Um, you know, how can their perspective help their um, you know, community? And so one of the students I write about in the book um, who was undocumented, we were working on um, a unit around human trafficking. And we had had several students in this area that had been kidnapped into human traffic, who were human trafficked. We were able to get them back, thank goodness, but it was this safety issue. Uh, their final assignment was to write letters. Here was their audience. They had to write a letter um, to uh, either a construction company or Walmart explaining why their products were so cheap because it was really child labor or um, to Craigslist, um, the webmaster uh, about the sex, the sex ads that are hidden in the webmaster. The construction company was a company owned by my brother who hired workers under the table and paid them cash because he thought he was being a good guy. And the student said, no, that's really bad because they're getting taxes taken out. If they get hurt, they have no insurance. Um, here's what he could do that would make it better for us. And so when this student wrote to my brother and my brother wrote him back, he saw that power of like, okay, maybe, maybe I can make, you know, the lives of my uncles and my, you know, grandfathers and, and me better because I can use this writing. And so, you know, once again, and I know you believe this too, there, there's just so much power and being able to read and write and communicate. And it's not about, you know, a silly grade. It's really about, right, how do we make our lives better? Right. Yeah, I always tell my students, and when, in particular my 10th graders, I say, we're doing this assignment, this summative assessment, this task, for to, so that you develop this skill now, but also for the future. To develop this kind of thinking now, but also for the future. So the kids are like, at least they like, okay, fine, I know that I have to do this for a grade, but at least I know that this skill of like, oh, how do you use language? Language can actually change. Language can, ch you can manipulate language to, to create a different feeling for your audience. Like, you're gonna need that. 
when you're at a board meeting. You're going to need that when you're writing to your customers. You're going to need that when you're connecting with your partners, right? So they, they, they perk up a little bit. They're like, oh, okay, I get it. Even though this is a task for school, this is the skill that I'm developing now. So I'm, that's, the, something, that's something I try to do often with my students. Let's talk about... Yeah. Go ahead. Well, I'm just going to say one thing. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want listeners and viewers to think that, that, you know, there's not hoops you have to jump through. We like as teachers, we always have to do that, right? There's summative tests we have to give. And, you know, I think doing what you're saying of like, all right, yeah, I know this is stupid, but this is what, this is a requirement and all in life there's requirements, but then also bringing in those real world um, applications of it. Right. And, and sharing that with kids. Here's why. If you can do this, you're going to be more empowered when you leave these walls around our school. I think, yeah, I think that balance is important. Let's move to the last mask or the mask of invisibility. How can we help students show their thinking beyond talking? Yeah, so that was one that, um, gosh, you know, I learned a lot about that. And, and once again, I'm always worried that I'm going to say something that's a sweeping generalization, but when I would work in Texas a lot, and a lot of the times when I was working with Latinas, teachers would say, I can't get my girls to talk. They won't talk, especially if there's certain boys in the class, they won't talk. And so I started kind of noticing that. It's not just, not just with Latinas, but like, like who are the people in the class that we, that we don't hear from? And, and they're, they're all kinds of different kinds of kids, right? We have to see their thinking. And of course, hearing it through speaking is the most efficient, easiest way for us as teachers. We don't have to grade it. We can make shifts right on the fly. But for the kids who don't talk, we have to give them another way to show their thinking. And so there's a, a big chunk in that chapter um, around these things I call think sheets. And it's just a way for kids to show their thinking. So if you don't wanna talk, that's fine. I'll honor that. But sometimes if you have thinking committed on, in writing, you're more willing to talk. Um, and I think this is really important for kids who are learning multi-languages, right? If you can write it down, you can refer to it, you feel more confident. Um, but that idea of using a think sheet means that there's not one right answer. There's multiple ways you can show your thinking. And if it's your thinking, it can't be wrong. And if you can show me your thinking, then I can be a better teacher for you because then I can see what you know and what you need, and then I can make adjustments. And so I think that's that piece of, you know, honoring kids who don't necessarily want to share with the group, but also not giving up on them, um, giving them some tools that might help them to speak more, but then also giving them some tools to show their thinking is really important. I think it's very similar to the invisible thinking routines. Like it seems like your your think sheets are very similar to the thinking routines uh, from Project Zero. Would you tell us more about those um, think sheets? So a lot of times they're you know, and you will see traces of them from my very first book, right? They're they're not you know, and like the biggest insult that I can get from a reviewer is someone that says, "Oh well, the the activities in the back of the book are just like in your other book." You know, first of all, they're not activities. <laughs> They're hopefully a tool that a social studies could use, a science teacher could use the same one, an English teacher could use the same one because they're open-ended. So on almost every think sheet, there's a, there's a place for kids to um, share questions that they have, right? Because we know so much research around, there's so much research around who's ever asking the question is the one who's getting smarter, right? Uh, there's places for them to read a little bit 
and then synthesize what they think they get or where their mind has wandered, right? So it's this, this idea of like helping them be meta, meta, more metacognitive so they don't read an entire three pages and realize, oh, I read the words thinking about what I was gonna have for lunch. Uh, there are places for them to make connections, but then also think about, all right, does this connection distract me? Or does it connect something the teacher talked about to something that I've read to now, oh my gosh, that helps me understand this concept better. Like tracing how those connections help us infer or relate or care about the topic more. Um, I hope what happens with those sheets is that teachers will take them and adapt them to meet the needs of their students or their teaching style. But the big idea is that it's just around um, there's you know two two objectives for them. One, it gives students a place to hold their thinking, because as you're reading, you want to have a place to hold that thinking so you can come back to it later and reuse it, either to discuss or to you know put in writing or a project. And then the other objective of those think sheets is for me to see, okay, what do you get or what do you need before we take that summative assessment, right? So I'm trying to help them um, before it's too late and we have to move on. So the think sheets serve those two purposes. In particular, for us, we get to see it's like formative data, like collecting formative data, so that it guides us on our path yeah. towards that long-term goal end. Yeah, yeah. Those formative those think sheets are formative assessments, plain and right. simple. Right. Let's. You ended the the book with "When you care, you fall more." Would you tell us about that? Well, I think it goes back to a conversation you and I had, and I think maybe it was before we started recording, but that idea of like mistakes, right? Um, like we, when we make a mistake, we're, we're learning, we're getting better. It's when we stop making mistakes that we're not getting better. And so the story that I tell in there is about skiing. I grew up in a family who skied a lot and I started skiing when I was about four or five years old. And I was the worst skier in the family. And the reason was I didn't, really care if I was a good skier. I didn't take risks. I didn't like to fall because it hurt. And that idea of, you know, if, if you're going to get better, you got to try new things and you got to fail. And then you got to brush yourself off and you got to try again. And I think, you know, probably the best teacher I've ever had was my father. And he was not a teacher. He built fences for a living. And I remember, you know, he taught me how to play tennis and he would show me how to hit a forehand and then I, I would try it. And then he'd say, okay, here's something that you did really well. Now, let me show you what I want you to do next. And he would model for me how to bend my knees and get lower. And then he'd say, all right, now try it again. And I think that's what makes teachers, the, the really great ones great is that they let kids wipe out and then they model and then they let them try again. But I think we also as teachers have to give ourselves that same grace we have to be okay with wiping out and not beating ourselves up when a class doesn't go so great. But that idea of like, all right, what happened today? Like, ooh. I mean, teaching is so incredibly complex. I, I don't know if there's a harder job than teaching. And, um, you know, we can't have it all figured out. It doesn't matter how long we've been in the business. And so I think we want to give our kids grace in failing and trying again, but we also give ourselves grace um, because that's going to help us get to be better. Well, Chris, thank you for giving us grace on this podcast of helping us with our practice. I think I wrote down the word affirming, like 
like this whole podcast was so, this whole conversation was so affirming to the things that we were doing. In particular, the mass were so affirming because the students that you talked about, the mass that you talked about are all the students that we experience. And you're sharing with us, hey, you're doing a great job. This is what you can continue to do. Try this as well. So thank you for all the work that you have done in the field and you continue to do and continue, continue to help particularly students uh, who are learning multiple languages and their teachers. Tom, thanks for having me today. And thanks to all the teachers are working so hard and you're, you're the true heroes showing up every day for our kids. And I thank you for that. Well, thank you for showing up with us. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that work and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now, onto our recap. Just as much as we plan for reading instruction, we have to spend time to plan how to motivate students to read. Chris's six T's help us plan reading instruction with a long view in mind so that students develop a lifelong relationship with reading. So that students develop a lifelong relationship with reading. And they come to see it not as something done to them, but something they do that positively contributes and expands their lives. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode.